Hello, it's me, John Duffy here. How are you doing? Our podcast producer, Tom, is away for the month. So to fill in the gap, we've put together a special bonus episode. Consume This episodes are usually honed from hours and hours of interviews and recordings. Once it's released, well, we kind of bury all that unused tape on the Consume This hard drive and move on. But today I've fired up the disc to bring you the full conversation Tom and Power Switch manager Paul Fuge had with former Prime Minister Dame Jenny Shipley. We originally recorded this at the end of 2022, so we sat on it for a few months and finally used some select cuts for the recent electricity podcasts. Here it is in full for your listening pleasure. So prior to when you became Prime Minister, you were, of course, Minister for State-Owned Enterprises, which would have meant you were quite involved in the electricity system and the electricity industry anyway. Because I guess a lot of people don't become Prime Minister and they think straight away, electricity reform, that's what we need to do, you know? But was that already quite in the front of your mind when you took over? During the 90s, there were a series of projects and programmes across government where we were looking at uh, several things, uh, how we could improve competition and the appropriate tensions across multiple markets, of which the electricity sector was one. In the early 90s, there were very significant fiscal uh, pressures, and so we were looking at the benefits of public and private ownership, and uh, in the selling down, what multiple benefits, if any, flowed from it, and that certainly was a factor when uh, contact was spun out. There were competitive and fiscal options and, and benefits there, and as we went into the latter part of the 90s, there was uh, increasing questions on whether a single or two companies could deliver everything across uh, the transmission system, uh, the generation system, and the customer service system, and that backdrop uh, led us to split up the system further uh, and establish the three uh, companies at that time. There was a lot of debate as to whether the Crown should stay in or not. Obviously, that's history. Uh, But yes, I was state-owned enterprise minister and I was very involved. There was a team of us. So Max Bradford as Minister of Energy, myself as uh, Minister of SOEs in the 96-97 period where a lot of that work was done. And then when I became Prime Minister, we most certainly continued to focus on that. Interestingly, it was also a priority of the coalition of which New Zealand First was a part. They also agreed to the opening up of that system. Okay, I mean, let's go back a bit to actually, that if we put ourselves back at the time when these reforms were happening. Obviously, colloquially, we called them the Bradford reforms. I think other people probably called them that. Is that really reflective of the time? Like, was do you think that Max was the driver of that? Or was it more that he was the public figure so that he just kind of got the name? Well, the latter is, of course, true mother of all budgets and Ruth and myself and welfare reforms. Uh, It's a lazy media technique, uh, branding these things, and it's frankly unintelligent. Uh, If you can, if you in any way imagine, or certainly in that time, if you in any way imagine ministers sit in their office by themselves and cook up some idea that they then impose on the economy without connection with others, uh, you, you simply don't know how either our government or good government works. We always ran teams, and there would be a lead minister who was the public-facing element of that, and Max did a very good job. He also had huge intellectual input, so let me be clear. He was the lead minister, and he understood the sector inside out, 
However, as SOE Minister, we had the, the stakeholder interests of the Crown and whether those assets against paying down debt, so the Ministers of Finance were in the room as well. The Prime Minister always has to be able to sell these reforms, so there's always an element of how that... And most teams would be three to five. In this case, it was definitely a five-minister team, but Max was the industry-facing and the public-facing person. But I remember, for example, just to illustrate, when it finally came down to completely and utterly bringing the ECNZ apart, having the chairman and the CEO in my office, and you know they were still putting very strong arguments why they didn't want change, and um, that was elevated, you know, to the prime minister's office. Uh, my just simply saying, you know, I appreciated their opinion, but we were going to proceed. So it's always a team and there's key stakeholders, all of whom have to be both informed, supported, but then managed politically. And the whole team did it. I mean, I guess on that, do you remember like where the specific kind of driving force for the reforms as they eventuated came from? Like who was behind that? Who was like, this is the way that we should do it? You know, no, no, that's not how it works. Uh, in government, we if you go back and look right across the 90s, we did a whole series of things. The labour market, the taxation infrastructure, how to deliver social services, how to deliver health services more effectively. In health, we decided we didn't need to own all the rest homes. The private market could supply, so we altered all that. And energy was just one of many. So it's completely incorrect to elevate the energy sector as if it was something special or isolated. This was a transformational period in the way in which New Zealand delivered government in order for the the economy to grow larger. And, I mean, history speaks to that. New Zealand's economy is much larger today than it was then when the government dominated the provision of most services. That's an interesting thing, right, because it was a whole period of transformation. So I think... What me and Paul talked about the other day is like how much of these reforms were driven by looking at the specifically the electricity market and saying, okay, well, we could do this better, we could do this better, there, this is not working well, this is working well, and what can we do about that? And how much of that was driven by there was a kind of momentum of a general societal set of reforms in place and it was a natural follow-on from that to apply that to the electricity market. What you've just described is correct. So again, you have to go back. Taxpayers, the top tax rate in those early days of that transformation was 66 cents in the dollar. Now, people get pretty knacked off when they're paying two-thirds of what they earn to the government. And uh, over time, the tax system altered. Many, many pieces of analysis went through. And this was both the Labour government and then the national government. It wasn't just us. So you're talking about the mid-80s through to the end of the 90s, I think can probably be described as the, the reform period uh, of which each government delivered particular elements. And uh, the chunk of the whole economy that the government dominated over that time diminished. But interestingly, the tax take increased, it didn't go down, and the size of the economy grew. So if you ask about why we were doing this, it was very clear that as we gave people clear signals that if they invested their capital, human capital and financial capital, they could be sure of the rules and they'd be rewarded. The electricity reforms were just part of that conversation. So it was assets, it was systems, it was governance, it was how you deliver it, it's where there were shortcomings. And this was in an environment where the public had got the stitch with big energy development. And we were worried because even though we didn't need growth at that stage, it was very obvious that over time, as New Zealand's population grew, 
and it has, and also as new energy demand grew, that we would have to have a very responsive system. I think the question now is, is that going to work? Mm-hmm. So if you had to kind of, you know, pin it down as the exact motivations for doing that separation at that time, like what would you say for you the most important of those was? Having a small board that was not controlled by the government, controlling what it was such an essential service. The Labour government had put in ECNZ and it had a private board and they dominated every aspect of the energy sector and that concentration simply was not in the interests of New Zealand from our point of view. While as part of the Labour government reforms it was a step forward because it had got it out of an old electricity corporation sort of state sector environment and they were starting to look and recommended that contact be spun out so they had started to look at how to introduce competition. It was our view that that hadn't gone far enough and that there were very significant inherent risks in leaving some of those elements entrenched in a single organisation. I mean, around the world, you look at New Zealand like for like, and uh, I would still argue on others' analysis, not mine, that we still have one of the most efficient energy sectors in the world. And it's quite proper that we discuss the detail of what would work better, particularly with a future focus. But from my point of view, I think they very much met a a series of the requirements. And then I I subsequently chaired Genesis Energy for nine years after I left politics and watching how the sector interacted and responded to challenges, you know, that's worked. Some of the deals that we did when government wanted Camelco to be supported, private companies stepped in and were able to do commercial transactions of, of a variety of types to make the system work. Commerce and good regulation does allow problems to be solved. Mm. So I guess on that, like obviously because we're consumer, you know, it's kind of in the I, name. I agree with that. So yes. we're kind of <laughs> focused like on consumer outcomes ultimately. Mm-hmm. And so I coming from that perspective, it's kind of interesting because at the time, you know, it was like a lot of the public facing statements were about this will lower prices, competition will mean you get a better deal on your energy and all of these kind of things. And it was sort of feels like it was sold on the idea of consumer outcomes. But what you've kind of just said suggests that actually like the outcomes were secondary to the methods that we're going to achieve them. So like introducing competition was the goal. And if no, 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 competition is a means to an end. Competition in its own right is lacking in merit. The evidence was that if you have multiple players, you will have a different outcome than if you have a monopoly player. Remember, at the very beginning, the monopolies were needing the support of taxpayers. What our objective was, was to get a much better balance so there'd be new investment and the pressures to keep prices down. I have sat at the board table and been in many situations with Genesis where you literally look at what the cost structure has gone up over the year and what price you think the market can bear. We have held prices. You know, different companies make rational market decisions about whether they'll pass on costs or whether they'll hold because of the competition in the market. You want to hold your customers and the switching system puts good pressure on that so that you know that you're sitting in a market where people are well informed. It's not true that there's just a, oh, let's pass on costs. And they have to make decisions on a monthly basis or a, an annual basis as to how they'll do that. Hmm. That's interesting. There's a couple of things you mentioned there, I guess. The idea of like, you know, you wanted to increase competition and things like that, right? 
the obvious question is why did you want to do that really <laughs> well you have to go back to the 70s 80s and 90s and see how inefficient uh, the government sector was across the whole of the New Zealand economy taxpayers were propping up multiple entities for no good reason and so we had a look at what elements of government service the Crown had to continue with uh, because, in fact, they were monopolies. And the transmission sector, uh, the national grid, is a very good example of that, that there was no uh, competitive benefit in breaking that up. However, the distribution of the main trunk, there was plenty of benefit in leaving a diverse range of suppliers, albeit that they, in some instances, were monopolies within their own uh, map. There were many, many reasons. I mean, when you are fiscally as constrained as we were, long before many of the generations who are alive now, New Zealand had had 17 years where we were spending more than we earned as a nation, and we'd racked up a debt of over 50% of GDP. You don't sit there and do nothing when you're in those circumstances. And so you start looking at how do you improve the productivity and effectiveness of the New Zealand economy. And we went systematically through the whole economy of which the energy sector was one. I think there was also an understanding in that group that historically the Crown had intervened and invested in the what they called the Think Big projects. These slogans amuse me in retrospect, but... Had that not happened, who knows where we would be now because that infrastructure has laid the groundwork for what New Zealand is. And I think we're right at the next point of whether the companies or the Crown and how they're going to work together to get the next uh, chunk of generation capability, particularly with the, the reduction in emissions pressures. This is a big economic question that laid over the public and private sector is going to be a huge debate, whoever is in government in the next five to ten years. Yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting. And I guess you see that with like the Lake Onslow things that are going on. There's this huge debate about that. Is it cost effective to do that? Is it not? I guess the idea of like privatization of parts of these, what were formerly state-owned enterprises, part of that was to remove some of the investment need from the Crown, right? Of course. So now we get to this juncture where there have been smaller projects built in the time and stuff like that, but there haven't really been any huge, huge new generation projects built. I mean, what did they look at? Like hydro is actually down from capacity, down from 98, geothermal is way up. There's actually weirdly more thermal generation than there was then. Do you think that that investment has materialised, basically, is what I guess what I'm saying? Well, I don't think it's fair to say there's been no investment. I mean, the geothermal is a very good example of how a range of new investments have been able to emerge. And they're actually outstanding collaborations, some of them with Maori and corporations and commercial generators. Uh, if you probe into how some of those were put together and brought to market, I think they're extremely interesting. The hydro, it's not so much a lack of investment, it's a lack of willingness of New Zealanders to make available you know, rivers and water. And I do think we'll have to come back to that, by the way. A lot of the stalling of investment in hydro coincided with a genuine concern amongst many urban people about the use of rivers and blocking off major catchments and so on. Now we do have to increase our capacity, and so it's not just who funds it and whether the public or private sector gets into it. Consumers are going to have to really debate, are they interested in the new crack technology available in nuclear? I mean, many countries around the world are investing in very clean, small nuclear projects, which when you line them up against all other 
energy investment, they stack up extremely well. Some will argue they are the cleanest and most sustainable investment model. Now, that's a big question for New Zealand, where people like me voted for a nuclear-free environment. But we're confronted with entirely different issues now. So water and water catchments and other technologies have to be right on the agenda, particularly those that you can describe as baseload, because it's all very well to talk about you know, wind and sun, and they're both very important elements. When I chaired Genesis Energy, we invested and explored lots of prospects around how to move into that area as we wound down Huntley. You can't be agnostic about the difference, though, between base and additional load, because the sun doesn't always shine, and even in New Zealand, you can't rely on wind. And as we've seen in the recent months, sometimes the pressure comes on and we have to go right back and dive into coal and gas in order to meet consumers' expectations. I hope that as part of conversations like this, where it's not about just, you know, did the reforms work, but what next? Because we were trying to, to achieve a lot of things, the growth in the energy supply, getting some money coming in from not out of taxpayers' pockets, but rather the market itself. And that question is sitting there right now. Who will pay for Lake Onslow. And right now, I can tell you that the generators are sitting there saying, we're not going to invest anything new until the government makes clear what they're going to do. Because if they're going to proceed with Lake Onslow, well, that's, you know, a right of any government to choose that. But you can't expect private investors to take a risk unless the investment environment is certain. So I think we've got some big questions in the next two or three years that are not only to do with the efficiency of the current sector, but actually how you meet public expectations of the lights being able to be turned on uh, when they expect to do so, because demand is going up. Mm. Okay, well, I guess there's an interesting thing there. So if we go back to like the 1998 separation of generation and lines, which is the key thing that kind of came out of that. Sure. One of like, the key things. Well, one of the key things, sure. Like, I guess in retrospect, when you look at that, based on the idea that now we're going to need more, you know, maybe local networks, more to support solar, to support wind, to support local energy storage and stuff. Do you look back on that and go, that maybe is not the right way forwards in the current environment? I mean, we should get back into the whole root of that first, but I guess just on the topic, was that now in retrospect with the way that our electricity needs have changed, talking about like more localised generation? is actually taking that back into the community where we need to go from here. Well, look, I don't think you can unwind history. I think it's probably unfair and unreasonable, sort of 25 or more years on, to say, well, now that new technology requires a different network structure, that should we have done something originally? I certainly supported the splitting of the RIB network, which we now know as TransPower, and the local distribution. And there are some local distribution networks that have become quite innovative and do allow different collaborators with them. So I'm not sure that you can say, you know, a reform structure is an impediment. I would still argue that if the investment environment is clear and these organisations are well-governed and mindful of what they need to do to keep maintaining a distribution network, that platform still has great potential. I would have preferred that there weren't as many lines companies, but politically it was not deliverable. And I can tell you, you have to live within what you can do. And interestingly, that was one of the, the most political elements of some of that reform, not the big network questions that we're discussing here. Mm. And I guess just so the interesting thing there about lines companies, you say like, you would have like preferred fewer, yes. and, but that wasn't deliverable. Like, Politically deliverable. And is that because communities felt such a 
sense of ownership of their own assets that they didn't then want to merge them with other communities? And like, what were your political issues there? They were exactly that. You know, some of these companies gave out very small amounts of money to important local communities as part of their dividend structure. And they were highly valued by communities. It wasn't a broader macroeconomic debate that they were looking at. It was very much a local community. And many of the members of parliament felt keenly about that. And so when you are working out a a policy framework, trying to bring efficiency to the market, there are always trade-offs. And that was one of them. We didn't constrain them being able to merge in the future. And as you know, a number of them have merged over time. But at that time, that was the imperative. And that's why so many of them were left. I guess... Oh, no. Do you think it's holding us back now? It's it's a it's interesting. Mm. Um, that's it's still twenty eight. Um, you know, we see two on the west coast. We yes. see two in the northland. I, I, in a broader sense, I think it is. I do think you need to look at them case by case, and if literally maintaining them across a complex geography uh, is not either practical or deliverable? The answer's no. Uh, But I certainly think we have more than we require. I don't believe in a monopoly system by any manner of means, but consolidation may well deliver benefits. That community does seem quite strong still. When when we have suggested amalgamation or consolidation, it does raise, you know, that people get quite um, animated about mm, that. I think you've got to go back and share the information before you rush to the conclusion. Right, uh, And I think these are good pause moments of, well, this is where we were, this is where we are now, yes. and let's stand back and say, well, we are where we are, and in order to adopt and invest in the innovation that we're talking about, and has to come, by the way, if we're going to have smart metering to the extent that it gives people genuine choice and in the investment and in assets in their homes, that, that these line companies are going to have to be extremely agile to accommodate that. It's not just what the Gentalias or the smaller companies do in providing electricity. The infrastructure has to maintain that and support it. So, yes, consolidation would be helpful. Mm-hmm. But, but the trade-off of the dividend not being sent back, which is a small amount of money and people often are amused when it comes in, but they have a sense of connection with it against if that was available to do the next thing. I think that needs to be explained again in the current context. That's interesting, right? The idea was that there was this natural monopoly of local lines companies, right? And that they shouldn't be allowed to own generation and or retail because those are both, well, not theoretically, very practically, potentially competitive industries, right? And there's the whole risk of like kind of cross-subsidization of lines businesses and generation businesses and things like that. That sort of makes sense if you think of that as having the potential to become like a large monopoly within an original area. But in retrospect, do you think that actually allowing the big generators to also become retailers just kind of created a different type of monopoly that took the place of that instead? Well, we didn't prevent other people coming in. The wholesale market and the retail market do work. I know that there's debate about whether it's fair or not, and I notice small players arguing that it should be broken up, but they should have thought about that when they set up their business model. The wholesale price does vary, and every company has to measure and manage that that pressure, usually generated by climate and, and the seasonal weather than anything else. Should it have been left together? I remember that being discussed, but on balance we decided that we would leave them able to be run. There was a discussion as to whether the Gentalias should be generators and retailers uh, and keep it separate. If I have any regret, and, and it's an easy observation now, 
smart metering. So whether people having access to their own information and that information being available to the market independently, the technology wasn't quite there. In my view, that's the single thing that gives Gentalia, well, any company, a lot of control if they own the meter. If the band of meters were owned by an entity that did not have an interest in supplying generation or servicing customers, as I look forward particularly, that's one thing that might be worth exploring further. As people talk about future demand, they often go to the supply side, you know, how will we generate this and that? Unless you give people the tools to be more efficient, then you're going to have to keep producing more and more without necessarily knowing how well it's used. We did some trials with Genesis where we supplied smart meters. We actually gave these families in the wire wrapper a lot of money. They bought solar panels and batteries and this and that and did a quite sustained trial to see whether it would change their behavior. And it was very interesting and very variable. Some families became very focused on turning the washing machine on in the middle of the night and realizing that they could bring their power bill down. And it was a novelty, but I wasn't, well, indeed, the company was not convinced that at this stage it was on a sustainable basis. I think one of the things future going forward is how do we create a culture where every household can not only benefit personally by using smart meters and knowledge and good actions, but whether you can effectively create another power station. By saving, you are reallocating what's available or not using what's available. Coming back to the smart meter and who owns that as opposed to it being incidental, I think is an interesting debate worth having. Mm. I mean, I'm sure, Paul, you've got something you want to pick up on that probably? Lots of things on that. Um, One thing as part of the research when we started looking at this is stood out to me that, that a lot of consumers may not be aware of is going back to the when, when there was a monopoly, local monopoly. The MB data s- says that the commercial price was actually higher than the residential price. So consumers may not realise that there was a lot of cross subsidisation going yes. on. So while there's no question that you know residential prices increased for a variety of reasons, but part of that was it was an unwinding of cross subsidisations that people may not even be aware of. Um, well, the, the government used the monopoly to try and generate growth in the economy. And, you know, you can governments do make those interventions. We held the view that people should invest on the basis of a return, not on the basis of a government subsidy. And cross-subsidisation, while it sounds theoretically fair, and in equity terms you can argue it is, in my opinion, there's no justification for industry being supported by you know, low-cost energy when retail households are paying uh, the opposite. It has levelled out a bit. I mean, it's now far more balanced than it was. Mm. I mean, it's interesting what you were saying, that, that the, ref- the Bradford reforms, so, you know, everyone mentions the Bradford reforms whenever we say anything about electricity, were a combination that sort of from the labour reforms of the late 80s, sort of a combination. And it's kind of went a bit quiet after that. And we didn't split generation and retail, and there, were, and there was a re, you know, reason for that. And that, and that um, I think on balance, they decided that there'd be more likely to be investment in generation if those two things were together. Now that we've got sort of 25 years on, is, do you think that the, the reforms have kind of reached the end of their, their kind of zenith, and the next series of reforms is now required with technology mm-hmm. change and the, the new investment required? Mm-hmm. So, do we need that next, the next reforms to start to kick in? Yeah. It has been a long time since. It is. Yeah. No, look, you're right. And, and um, 
I mean, the word reform was used very widely in that period. And it was used in the context of the government being dominant to a New Zealand broadening its approach to markets. That context is very important. I mean, we had simply got away with supplying Britain. They effectively paid us and we lived happily ever after. They booted us out of the nest when they joined the EU and a whole lot of things uh, became a a realisation as we weren't earning enough, we got into debt as a nation, heavily into debt, The, the World Bank was over our shoulder and you don't sit there and do nothing. So the reform environment then is different to the reform demand now. I think that we are sitting uh, in an entirely new spot, but it's going to require a massive response. Uh, We've got a a desire to drive emissions out of the electricity uh, or the energy sector, but I'm focused personally on the electricity sector in this instance. To do that, we're going to have to innovate. This is not straightforward. And there's still a debate to be had whether a 100% target is actually achievable for New Zealand. And I don't think we should be naive or unrealistic because people like the idea of being 100% great. We're already 85% renewable, I think, and that's very high relative to others around the world. We can do a far more, but I also know politically New Zealanders will not tolerate cold showers. We have to have this discussion. You know, what's tolerable and actually what's deliverable. So the baseload argument and then supplementary energy and what else we can do in terms of intelligent use all should be on the agenda. As I said earlier, I think we do have to look at uh, being a water-rich nation. What are we willing to compromise in that area for public good? These are reform questions, which I don't think a government should rush to proceed to impose. I think that there's literally a wānanga requirement where people sit down and share genuine information. I mean, I respect the consumer interest here, but actually this is a whole of New Zealand, whole of government, whole of the private sector, uh, whole of public interest, public use, uh, and then multiple demand from large and small. You can't tell Fonterra to get out of the coal use if there's not alternative supply. You've got to go through this. What do we do with coal and gas? Gas is cleaner than coal. What's our tolerance level of continuing to use? I mean, I presided over shutting down of turbines in Huntley uh, because this is directional. Uh, The question of what do we want to hold uh, as a backstop and uh, who pays for it? Because in the market... If we don't need it, we don't need it. I mean, the company could shut it down and probably do better. However, you've got to weigh up the public interest around, and we get high prices on the odd day, but we have to hold these turbines uh, warm if they're required. If there's a public interest in doing that, we should debate that. It's like Lake Onslow. Are we going to do this? So it's an underlying guarantee, and who's going to pay for it? Those questions haven't been answered properly yet. I guess that's an interesting thing I actually did want to ask you about, which is probably a bit of an aside, and Paul can wrangle us back into the right kind of ballpark in a minute. But you've talked about electricity as a public good. Do you feel like it is a public good that people have a right to and it is a job of a society to provide to all members of that society? Yeah, but not, but not through the public purse. So, so there are certain essential infrastructure that we all agree are going to be available, connectivity, roads to get from A to B, electricity when the lights go on. That doesn't mean the government has to be the single supplier. It's completely ridiculous 
to suggest that that's the case. I can tell you that Wellington does not have the answers to everything, believe me. And the diversity of New Zealand is such that we actually have to take a much broader view around what's there, what the needs are, what the future needs are likely to be. And actually there's a multiplicity. So electricity and water, for example, can't be separated because if you create generation capability, you're often creating water reserves that then can be used on other multiple public good benefits which allow recreation and agriculture and all these choices. So it needs to be brought into a broader context if you're going to address water. Public good means meeting the public's expectation. It doesn't mean the government's got their hand in every taxpayer's pocket doing what they like with their money. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's interesting because when you talk about, you know, we need sustainable base load and but also we need obviously peaking capacity for times when like lakes are lower and it's very expensive for a private company. And I think you probably had this issue with Huntley in what it would have been like the mid 2010s or something where you get to a point where for a private company, it becomes very costly to run it and it is not an efficient thing for them to be doing. But at the same time, on a wider like societal level, it's still a necessary piece of infrastructure, just not maybe a profitable one. Well, there's a genuine debate as to how many of the turbines. I mean, it's a big, in its full glory, it was what, a thousand, you know, it was a very big chunk of New Zealand's baseload. As geothermal and others have come on, that baseload piece has not made Huntley as essential as it was. But it's a brave government that's going to say that uh, there is no role. And I, I respect the fact that future governments need to grapple with this. But it's not obvious to me yet where peak demand is going to be met from. I understand the Lake Onslow overarch, but I haven't seen what the cost benefit against other alternatives and what New Zealand's tolerance is. I mean, what if we get to 95 and then still hold a 5% peak load that is gas supported or whatever? I think we should have that discussion so that we actually know what our choices are. I also think we need to look over several years because there have been years where Huntley's hardly been called into the market. And then other years where it's been absolutely essential in the market. So unless you look at, at the use uh, across other baseload years, when you see the climate fluctuating uh, more than demand, it's actually more what, what the climate is doing that drives this and whether the lakes are high or low and, and all of that carry on, uh, whether Huntley is called in. Mm. Who pays to have that as an option is something that we... Well, I can tell you that as chairman, I used to say it's time we went to the government and said, you know, if you want to keep this as a family pet, tell us now because we're going to shut it down <laughs> otherwise. Because on the on the numbers, it would have been shut down some time ago. But it won't be, by the way. The government owns 51% of it. They've never, by, never rocked up in my period and said, you must do this or you must do that. The board makes those rational decisions. The chief executive and others consult with the shareholding ministers regularly and um, the weighing up of their emissions targets against um, other options and offsets. You know, there's lots of things that the company can explore. I'm not involved in it now, so I can't comment on what they're doing. Mm. All right, Paulie, you want to wrangle us back on somewhere in the ballpark of on topic? I've, got, I've just got a couple of questions just that have popped top into my head. One of the, the you know the cornerstones was that competition would be good for consumers, yes. and, and you know the Bradford reforms you call that um, sort of unleashed you know, retail competition. Do you think consumers have seen the full benefit of competition, or, was, or do you think we still haven't unleashed 
that, that full benefit yet, that full potential has not really been realised. I always try and weigh this up with how much consumers use the switching. Yes. And I, it'll be very interesting in the next 12 to 18 months as cost of living pressures come mm. on people's households as to whether they really do have to go in and see where their cost centres are and think, gosh, I mean, we're all a little bit, you know, if things are going well, we tend not to go worrying about the last dollar. Uh, when pressure is on, then, you know, your mortgage cost and your power cost and your telecommunications competition, which is available in the market, unless you've got an imperative to go and explore it or you're keen to do so, mm. often you don't utilise the platforms. So I think the competition in the market or the competitive market is available to consumers. It's up to consumers to explore how to utilise that to their own advantage. So it's not being utilised to its full potential. I think that we, we should have this conversation in two years and see whether switching becomes a major part of people's response to the current environment. Because that, certainly that's what we see. Mm. Most switching occurs is when people move house. That's 70% of right. when it happens. Yeah, we know that. Yeah, yeah, so companies know that. So. Yeah, so that's, um, and put a big effort into trying to hold their customers yeah. to help them when they move house. Yes. So it'll be interesting to see. That's, that, that's something we keep getting a, a close eye on is, mm. is the switching. Do you think there's any, any, like back to my further question, before question, any reforms do you think that would, would help unleash the power further of retail competition? Yeah, my comment around smart metering there would probably be a, have to be a disaggregation of, of existing metres out of the hands of a, a current players. So it would be quite a significant reform. But if it was sold on the basis that if people have the power and, and know that it's independent, because that people often worry that the Gentalia or, or some other owner of a smart meter has got an incentive to still set different... Um, daily rates and things as opposed to let them genuinely see how their use as a consumer is being reflected. Now, I worry that we're using a similar pricing platform as we've always used across a smart technology mm. framework. And so if you're asking me my opinion on whether consumers can get the best benefit, I think neutral ownership of, of the um and this may take 10 years. I mean, it may be a long-term goal. You could argue that it could be put in the emissions package because if you're going to shift control mm. to consumers so they genuinely have, uh, what are the companies offering me? How can I watch? How can I manage my household demand more effectively? How can I coach my children so that they know where the meters are and what could we do in bringing the concept of electricity in the home as a cost management tool, not as an amusement tool. They're far smarter than most of us are leveraging, but with a really strong consumer focus, if you have a smart meter and you know how to then utilise your in-house um, as opposed to the price point of where electricity comes in, I think the next big gains are somewhere in that interface. I'd, I... 
I mean, I'm aware of how many times governments have come in and said they're going to look at the energy sector and consider further reform, and almost all of them have backed off and said, actually, uh, like for like, it's a very efficient system. But you asked me earlier around, is it time for the next set of reforms? In this instance, I don't think it's a let's unwind what's been done. Uh, there's no way the New Zealand economy's got the money to, you know, nationalise anything. I think that the intelligence space where consumers could really benefit is an area where radical redevelopment, uh, I think reform is actually an unhelpful word because it doesn't get us to where we need to go. And maybe radical is unhelpful as well. But, you know, where's the next big step change where people could be in control of their energy use and have far more visibility on price input? So switching would have far more information on not just what you can currently offer them, but far more data on the input and then how they could manage their household. I think this is essential, by the way, to meet future demand because the longer we can delay putting the next big mega power plant in, the better it is for all of us, albeit that I think we are going to have small and large investments that will need to flow through here. Well, I guess just coming from a purely like consumer point of view, I guess my take on that is part of me is excited by the idea of having like those kind of nerdy demand side response techniques and all that kind of stuff. And then part of me goes, oh, fuck, I don't have the time to want to deal with this. Like, I don't have the information to be able to deal with this. It's just it's putting a lot of pressure on individual consumers to manage that. I don't know. I just, this is just my personal thing is looking forward to. I'm like, yes, I want more demand side information. And yes, I want to be able to control, okay, prices are high now. I'll put the washing on now. Or I want to be able to look and have like, okay, well, we're 100% renewables now. So this is the time I'll use my tumble dryer because then I'll feel good about that decision. But at the same time, I'm just very daunted on a consumer level by the whole process of having to take that much ownership of something that basically is kind of a mystery that just comes into my house. Like if I go to the supermarket, I'm like, I don't know, I want to buy some canned tomatoes. I can see, 10 different options in front of me and they all got prices on. They can say, I'm going to pick this one or this one. Whereas with electricity, you kind of don't have that option. You know, like you, you might get a plan that will fluctuate at different times of day and things, but you don't really have that kind of granular control over price decisions in the same way. Look, I, look, I completely understand what you're saying, but you, you, we can't wish ourselves wealthy without producing wealth. Uh, We all have. I don't think we can wish ourselves 100% renewables by just dreaming. If we're serious about the stuff, this is where the rubber hits the road. So when you ask me what change is required as opposed to, you know, a reform often implies the winding back. And, And, you know, some governments have said they would. The minute they looked at the market, they changed their mind. So I don't think that's going to happen. On the margin, there are things that can improve. I mean, if you want a a disruptor, I think that the three SOEs that are there, the government as a 51% shareholder is going to have to decide even whether they will invest at the rate that is required. So, you know, you can go to your 49% shareholders and say, we're going to build our next dam and your dividend is going to be less than it was last year. Uh, The government's going to have to decide, is that a lever? that they're willing to support because if they want to hold their majority 
shareholding? Or will they go down to 25% in order for capital to flow into the sector? I think it is the right time for these conversations to be had. And it's not actually a privatisation market. It's a, the energy sector needs investment. And who's going to put their hand in their pocket to do that? So again, Father Christmas doesn't exist. You either go into all taxpayers' pockets, and you've just told me, people are already struggling to make meaning of this, or are there people who like investing in the energy sector and are we prepared to give them a, an 8% dividend for paying for that? Or this money has to come from somewhere. And I do think the three SOEs and their ability to do the investment exists. I'm absolutely clear that they know their networks, they know how to generate, they've got high quality staff, they're very experienced in the market. I don't think we've got a single weak one. They're interesting insofar as they're highly complementary. I have heard people argue that we should only have two, not three. Should you merge them? These are not debates for me. I mean, they are long-standing debates in the market. But I do think the question of where the money comes from, from the next set of big ideas that might empower consumers because there will be infrastructure costs. You can't go and get a smart network in a single entity like Transpower and disaggregate current ownership. You'd be buying it off Gentalia's, or these are where big changes have to come from in order to make a market work like that. But I do think because of the way in which energy is being used in the future, if we're serious about empowering consumers, these are things worth talking about. I, I think that if people are treated with respect and informed properly, they do have the capacity to understand this complex issue. So I'd love us to have someone start talking about, are we ready to talk about which rivers or which catchments we could harvest water and then release it to generate more electricity in the future and create other amenities? Because that's been the reality of some of the dams. We were against stuff, but once it's done, you know, look at the catchments in the, the central South Island and in the North Island. These are some of the biggest recreational areas and many of this generation can't remember what they looked like before these were changed. I do think it's the right time. There are other catchments that could be looked at, in my opinion, and they are a great investment in the future and they have multiple public and private benefits by taking those decisions. I'm not sure who's going to do it. Maybe it's consumer role to actually <laughs> raise the big questions on behalf of consumers. That's right. Just get, get back to the reforms. I mean, it's what I, what I hear a lot, any, any electricity issue. It's become a catchphrase for any kind of, they go, oh, the Bradford reforms. I sure. don't think consumers fully realise what the Bradford reforms were. It's become a catch-all for, sure, the, I understand. for the general reforms. So do you think they've been unfairly maligned? Because if you look at the, twi- the deeper dive we've done into the, you know, since 25 years is that there were a lot of cross-subsidies that have been unwound. We have put a lot of power stations. The national grid's been basically rebuilt. Well, a lot of money's been in the national grid. The era of cheap, cheap gas ended and GST increased. So correlation is not causation. So sure, the price has increased, but it wasn't. You can't just say that with the Bradford reforms. So you think the reforms have been unfairly maligned in, people, in consumers' heads, that they've, they've put all that stuff onto the reforms when it probably wasn't the, necessarily the, the cause of all those, all those things. Mm. Look, I, I think many of the reforms in the 90s were unfairly maligned and heaven knows what New Zealand would be like today had they not been done. I think the Bradford reforms have been unfairly maligned and Max for a period of time was personally unfairly maligned, but it takes courage and character to do some of these big leadership 
projects, and Max had that in bucket loads, as did the other ministers who sat round this table and diligently unpicked the complexity of what we faced. And now we do have, you know, a properly maintained national grid. I worry that if we left it as it was, it would just be patched up. The last breakdown would be mopped up. Now Transpower has an obligation to keep a national grid network available and flexible all the time. Now, why wouldn't we do something where the entity is completely focused on that, as opposed to, you know, trying to do 25 things at once? I think it was a gift to New Zealand which only over time will be realised. And every time I've seen a government come in and say they're going to review the electricity sector only to proceed to do nothing, I think it's an endorsement of uh, the reforms that Max as minister, uh, along with the team, led. Mm. It leads me to, like, I guess this is kind of a big question, but with the benefit of hindsight, like, did the reforms work in the way that you anticipated? Unquestionably, yes. I mean, had we not done them, I don't think we would have anything like the reliable electricity infrastructure that we take for granted every day. That's not where we were heading. You know, we had a a splendid monopoly that kept buying very expensive art and hanging it in their corridors and uh, were part of a corporate sector who thought that it was just fun to run a very large company. I'm being cynical. But electricity and the, the infrastructure and the importance of it to the New Zealand economy is something that governments have to worry about. And in the 90s, there were a lot of reasons why it was clear that if we got the levers right, private sector investment would flow in across all of the economy and we would see a shift from just debt and deficits to investment and growth. That's what we succeeded in doing, with the exception of the 97, 98 Uh, Asian crisis where we fell into deficit for six months, Uh, that period and that degree of change which continued, Helen Clark inherited a surplus and 4.5% growth rate when we finished in office. Many of the changes to do with the electricity sector and the confidence it provided where people knew the rules, they knew where investment was going, they knew what the government was going to do and what was an opportunity for the private sector. Those floats were hugely successful. Lots of people didn't think that the private sector, you know, mum and dad would want to invest. They flooded into those um, floats and said, we see that this is an important part and they have done well from them. Hmm. I guess my concern about that would be, I guess, it's, yeah, I guess it's a concern, would be that in real terms, electricity prices that consumers are paying now were about 50% higher, give or take, than they were before the reforms took place in 98. And I mean, that- you, you go and check anyone where in the world and compare like for like. Mm. There is nowhere that when you take, this is 25 years on, or tell me a service, actually there are very rare services that have dropped in price, but they are generally not services that require massive ongoing infrastructure investment and complex network maintenance. Remember that every bill a consumer gets, you have the blinking lines company and they're either efficiency or inefficiency reflected in that bill. Dear old Gentalias and, and the retailers, they have to take all of these costs and pass them through. So th- those people are not having to be held to account. That is one of the things, by the way, that worried me. I mean, you'd be a genius if you could read your own power bill. You get your power bill and so many elements of it are just buried in 
even, I mean, I look at it and my eyes glaze over. And we tried <laughs> and tried in, in um, Genesis to make it more transparent. But, you know, you've got a whole lot of other inputs that you don't control that you have to present in your accounts to consumers. Mm. And that makes it very difficult. We never did work out how to do that better. On the other hand, we were determined at the time not to make people's lives miserable and to have to pay seven or eight bills uh, to different providers in the electricity sector. I haven't turned my mind to what the solution is there, but disaggregating it would be entertaining for some officials uh, and consultants would make a lot of money. But I think that the transaction cost of still having to pay the overhead of the lines company to send the bills, you know, this doesn't take you anywhere. So you have to be careful what you wish for. Mm. I think Paul might have some questions on that. Well, they did try that. and There was one lines company who was, was sending their own power bills and uh, was very unpopular and they've stopped doing that. But we are looking, actually, we're doing a big uh, research project on power bills and it gets back to a previous point oh, about, about um, the market itself. You know, does it, does it behave in the same way as markets for other products like tins of tomatoes, etc.? cetera? Mm. Um, and we see evidence that things could definitely improve there, that consumers, despite seeing large savings, are not switching the numbers you'd expect and that's that's in the case to us that there are some issues there that need need addressing oh and and look all that type of research is valuable holding the market to account i mean markets are markets but within markets they only perform if there are appropriate constraints and pressures and consumers come into this as long as they're well supported with good research they'll have an influence on what companies do all right well i've got two things then basically one, and it, I mean, this comes back to, again, your genesis time is, do you think, like, from that experience, that there's actually an incentive for those gen tailors to compete seriously for more customers than their own generation load? Is there a point where actually having more customers becomes more of a liability than a benefit? I don't think it's a common circumstance, even in the existing market. Um However, when other companies got out of certain types of generation, the the market did respond with products and they came to us more than we went to them, actually, simply because of the nature of our our generation capability. So um, it's not so much will they go and try and get more customers than their current load can carry, but the, the, the confidence that they have in the mix of their load, that if it's vulnerable, they will take measures to uh, uh, cross-purchase. I haven't seen an example, I can't recall an example, where products or, or um, um, uh, arrangements were entered into where a, um, a gentalia had more customers than they wanted. The smaller uh, than than the base load could produce. Uh, The smaller producers, obviously, and who are retailers only, have a a quite different need of what they're trying to uh, buy, both from the market or through particular arrangements. And uh, there are a variety of those. I mean, Trust Power's an interesting model that sort of navigated its own way in the market and has bought and sold a bit as they've worked out what makes money and what doesn't. But I, look, I, even in the, the years I was involved in Genesis, the, both the market and the way the market responded continued to evolve. And I think that will continue. I also think you might see some of the big customers, 
the ones who have been coal users getting out, where they go, whether they generate their own electricity or come into arrangements, uh, some of them are big in their volume, and whether they will go to a mix of providers or whether they'll enter into major arrangements, you know, these are, these are new, they're not marginal. They, they are they're going to create a ruction one way or another through the market as they either produce or purchase. And I'm not on their board, so I don't know what they're working out, whether it's cheaper for them to go into generation of some sort or into some sorts of market arrangements. All of these ripple through and affect customers, whether they're large or small, because it's a demand cycle question. Mm, Okay. And then the other thing, I guess, is how do you feel, and I guess this kind of comes back to Huntley in a way, how do you feel about the wholesale kind of capacity auction the way it works and the way it's determined by the marginal cost of production because i know obviously people floated like single purchaser and things like that but like it's fantastic we sweat well when i say we genesis sweats when there's miles of water you know you get a, a season where uh, we're going to have to carry huntley and it's a, a, a darling dinosaur you know um on those years and then for other years uh, it's dry and you can see there's a cycle that's coming winter and spring where there will be coal required it's not straightforward you know Huntley has to carry a very significant load of coal that they store I can remember at one stage that the the coal pile was you know a hundred million dollars of an overhang sitting there now the dual fuel option with gas and coal is a, a now very efficient. It's much more efficient than it originally was, but it's still a very expensive option. It Being bought into the market, though, when it's required, somebody's got to pay for that. And that pricing, again, they've been investigated several times as to where it's price gouging. And I, I think, generally speaking, the market regulators have always concluded that it was justified. Peak is peak. And I know that some of the small holes as retailers hate it because they went in thinking that it would be a very easy medium average. But that's not the nature of climate. And, you know, sometimes the climate's generous. And so those retailers will do very well. They can set a wholesale price and manage the fluctuations without disrupting customer behavior. Other times you will get these shocks And it's not a shock from a company. It's a company responding to a climatic shock and passing the cost on. I don't know who else would pay that cost if you don't pass it on. So I think the market operator does work very well in those circumstances. I guess because I guess what I was kind of thinking is that obviously, you know, Huntley's expensive. It needs to be paid Mm -hmm. an amount that it needs to be paid to operate, for example. Mm -hmm. But say Lake Carapiro is a much lower marginal cost generator, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess there's a perverse incentive to not compete like if you think about competition in the way of like power companies and generators Mm -hmm. surely the competition on their side is how can we generate the most electricity as cheaply as possible because the cheaper we can generate this electricity the better because then we can undercut the other competition and we can do more and more of this right but the idea that everyone gets paid the highest marginal costs in a weird way kind of to me it feels like that would disincentivize that competition because if you've got too much low cost you're in higher price suddenly falls through the floor. Well, they manage that over time. But remember the operator, if I understand it correctly, he doesn't call in the highest 
price. They say how much demand is required and you bid it into the market and people make a rational decision. Now, it's not only whether water is in Lake Karapiro or wherever it is at that day. They will not be looking on a daily basis. They'll look at the price on that day, but they'll be also considering how to generate a reasonable return over a long period of time based on storage. You know, water in a lake is like money in the bank and you don't spend it all on one day. So you don't give it away. You manage it in order to be able to deliver the return back to the taxpayer and to your shareholders. Uh, So they're making rational decisions. But look, my observation is that the market operator, sometimes we just have to, Genesis had to sit out of the market because we were not competitive. So we didn't put either water or, I mean, sometimes water has quite a significant differential. Might have poured with rain in the North Island and Waikari Moana and whatever are full and others are at, you know, terribly low percentage of, of their, and so you decide, heavens, I better hold that as backup. The traders make those decisions along with the board all the time. The board doesn't get involved in the daily, but they understand and expect the traders to manage the market so we don't create crises, but we also get good returns. I, I think it's worth investigating, but no, I, I don't think there's a big mischief there. You don't think that the that market mechanism could be is, is still fit for purpose it's for the future? Well, look, the only alternative is to say to every generator that if people don't like that, you know, the very high prices, particularly that come out of a Huntley spike. And a Huntley spike is only a market that has not a lot of capacity, you know, so those spikes don't occur unless um, we're literally running out of water. There is an argument that everyone should pay something. If you're going to keep all of these companies floated, uh, there is an argument that if it's a backstop provider, you you should have all of the companies contributing to the backstop. So it's only the companies or the taxpayer. They're the only alternatives. So you're going to say, well, if you want to manage it in a different way and keep the price not showing the real cost of producing it on that day, which is what those sharp costs occur um, or, or reflect, you've got to make another intervention. At the moment, I think the market is probably the best of the interventions. They are a shock for the, the flicks of this world who have said, you know, take the daily price and then they don't like it when the daily price turns up and is, you know, a whopper. And they've got a very low overhead and their business model is what it is. But, you know, I think we've all got to look at the relative business models in the market and see how they speak to each other. So you don't think, for example, there'd be merit in having a blended price, for example, across all no. generations? Because it doesn't, we also need investment. So blending then diminishes the ability of companies to make rational future decisions. If, if we say, well, government's going to do all the future investment in the sector and the retailers and generators only have to worry about the annual market, you could go for a blended price. But you're asking these companies to make a lot of decisions uh, around future demand and they will respond. I mean, they will put the investment in if they think that there's both demand and in establishing demand to return on capital and an ability to deliver a dividend over time. Uh, I can tell you there's multiple pieces of analysis done and consent sought anticipating this stuff. So they're not sitting there doing nothing. They, They are looking ahead all the time. But unless they're confident that in raising the capital and deploying it, that they can get a return and that there are customers that will use that, 
it's always a judgment call. Mm. Interesting what you're saying about the lake onslow being a cooling effect on those Absolutely. decisions. Well, that, that's exactly the, the reason why you've got to be clear about wh- why the government will be in the market. I haven't read enough, but I think it's quite an unproven model. It looks very expensive. And again, you've got to sit it against other alternatives. And my worry is that if they do this, every, you know, the wind farm in the Wairapa that Genesis has got consented, that's a very big wind farm site, along with, um, I think it's Mercury or is it Meridian? Anyway, there's no way they're going to be deployed unless they think, because they've got quite a track to get to the transmission lines. And, you know, all these things have to be weighed up. It's not just ploughing the capital into some towers. It's and they've purchased all the sites, but they're sitting there. Mm. So there's a, a number of consented sites sitting, waiting. And the minute you start one of these, they will just stop and say, well, we'll wait and see. Thanks very much. That's um, been really insightful. Cool. Thank you for that, Jenny. All right. My pleasure. You've been listening to a special bonus episode of Consume This. Our thanks go out to Dame Jenny Shipley for taking the time to speak with us. If you enjoyed the episode, why not leave us a rating and review in your podcast app now? Consume This is brought to you by Consumer NZ. This episode was introduced by me, John Duffy, and the interview was conducted by our producer Tom and my colleague, Power Switch Manager Paul Fuge. If you're looking to save money on your power bill, you could do a lot worse than heading over to Power Switch. Typically, households save between $300 and $400 a year when they switch, and it only takes around 10 minutes. We'll be back with more of our regular programming soon. See ya. Hello, I'm Abby Darman and I work in the campaigns team at Consumer New Zealand. I want to tell you about some of the exciting work we're doing here at Consumer New Zealand. Right now, literally, as we speak, we are working really hard to keep big businesses and our lawmakers in check. So we're currently engaged in taking on unfair retirement village contracts, misleading supermarket pricing and dodgy green claims. To keep up this good work, we need to raise $50,000 before the 24th of September. So please, if you can, help us to help others by heading to consumer.org.nz forward slash donate. Thanks so much.